week on Lean Out, we turn our attention to freedom of expression in the world of arts. My guest on today's program is an acclaimed and controversial choreographer who says the UK's creative industries are in crisis, experiencing a culture of widespread fear and intimidation, and she has launched a new organization to address this. Rosie Kay is the CEO and Artistic Director of the K2Co Dance Company and a founder of Freedom in the Arts. Rosie Kay is my guest today on Lean Out. Rosie, welcome to Lean Out. Oh, it's just fantastic to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's very nice to have you on. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, You have recently launched a group called Freedom in the Arts to combat what you describe as intolerant activism, which now poses an existential threat to the arts. Describe for us to start today from your vantage point, what have you been seeing in the UK arts scene? Oh, gosh. So I, I come at this with my own personal experience, and I was attempted very nastily to be cancelled. And then through that process with support from somebody that's working at the Arts Council, this person that supported me then also got harassed and bullied out of her job. So we were both invited to speak at the House of Lords and we really kind of coordinated together to make sure that we had two very different opposing stories, but we had a very strong message. And there were people in the House of Lords, including a former director of criminal prosecutions, who just said, but hang on, what's happening is illegal. And we said, we know, we know this, and it's happening to us, women, you know, really in strong positions in their careers in the arts. You know, if you can imagine what it's like for us, can you, what's it like for other people? So following this, this talk at the House of Lords, Denise Farmy and I sort of sat there and thought, who else is going to help support artists but us, really? It really was one of those moments, um, if not you, who? And... So we've spent, I mean, this must be maybe like seven or eight months ago. We've spent that time talking with artists. I, I mean, I, I deal with case studies all the time, but I decided to make it more formal and start interviewing artists and leaders in the arts from all sectors just to say, hey, you know, hello, thinking of doing this. What do you think is going on? And at the same time, building up an advisory board. And what I found out really It really shocked me, but in another way, it didn't shock me because it had happened to me. So in a weird way, I kind of, I could really empathize. And I could say to all these individuals who felt very lonely, I know you think you've gone mad and this has been really difficult, but actually there is a, there is a playbook here that's happening. And because of the variety of the sector, so that's music, classical music, dance, theater, visual arts, ceramics, poetry, literature, uh, museums and libraries. And then also I've got a little fringe of um, filmmakers and people that work in commercial music business can say that actually it's a range of topics. It could be anything that becomes your minefield. But then the way you're treated, if you cross this invisible line, there seems to be a pattern with that. The hounding, the intimidation, the bullying, the kind of like calling to like, process grievance procedures that has no system no logic no end point the lack of care the lack of care has been appalling and I don't think artists have you know we're not predisposed to be 
really tough fighters. You know, we we're, we are te- we do tend to be very sensitive people, and this shocks us to our core because our lives, our work, our politics, our thought, our opinions our livelihoods, our ability to make money, it's all tied together. So I do think that we're particularly vulnerable a group. And that's why it's been really successful to attack the arts. And I do want to talk about the particular experience that you went through. Uh, But before we get to that, I I want to ask a a more philosophical question about the arts. And and, and the context for this is that in Canada right now, the arts have become, in some sectors, very, very dull and dogmatic. And I'm hearing from artists about this, and it's certainly my feeling about it as well. You have said that the arts are not about navel-gazing, that art is supposed to challenge. You, of course, have made controversial work throughout your career. In your view, what, what is art for? What is it supposed to do? What feelings is it meant to evoke? So I, I think I'd always sort of believe this, but I haven't really had it tested in practice. But you cannot make art from a place of fear. It's an incredibly uncreative place. It, it, it's a contraction physically, mentally, ideologically. And actually making art, it, it does demand in some level, not always a full encompassing freedom, but it does demand in some way certain freedoms an ability to test ideas, an ability to play, to mock, to dismantle taboos or constructs. And, and I think that's, that's absolutely necessary for the creation of art. Now, what art actually does in society is, is, something, is something actually quite separate. You need the freedom of the artist to play and explore, make a mess. We don't know if we're ever going to say something profound or not. You know, if you do, you're like, yes, bloody lucky. You, but the more you try, the kind of like the harder it is to achieve. However, what the arts do to a society is they mirror back what's going on. And they do tend to be the canary in the coal mine. And so because I've worked, you know, I, I've done a show that's based on research with the British military. So I've worked with soldiers, generals, officers and the Secret Service kind of people for quite a few years. I remember speaking to one Secret Service person. and I said, why? Why the arts? Why do artists get sort of targeted? This was before my cancellation. And he said, well, you're a difficult lot. You know, you're not as clear cut as the political activists, um, but you question you think differently, you come at problems from strange angles. And he said, it is one of those things that we look at in like authoritarian regimes. If they start to target the artists, we know there's big problems happening. He said, we're just not used to seeing this in the West. We haven't for at least a couple of generations. And so let's move now to talk about what what happened to you specifically. Um, This is a famous incident in Britain, but listeners in Canada may not be aware. So in August of 2021, ahead of a dance premiere, you hosted a bonding gathering at your house for dancers. They hadn't had a lot of time together during COVID, is my understanding. And late that night, you started to discuss your next show based on Virginia Woolf's Orlando, a novel about an aristocratic poet who is transformed from a man into a woman. Um, the conversation ended up getting contentious, uh, kicking off a dispute that culminated in you resigning from your own dance company. Walk us through exactly what was said during that discussion in your home. Well, I suppose it started with the, uh, Orlando, who starts off a male aristocrat, just transforms into having a, a woman's body halfway through. And I think Virginia Woolf is trying to say something really pertinent that's got some relevance to her times. I, I can't quite unlock exactly what it is, but that was like part of the joy of discovering that novel and wanting to try and adapt it physically. And in my mind, that could have been a man, could have been a woman, could have been trans, could have been an, anybody, but it had to be an extraordinary actor, an extraordinary dancer 
And that was it. That was my criteria. And I needed to believe that they were Orlando. I needed to believe it. And just the first, the initial pushback was that that has to be played by a trans performer. And I said, well, you know, what do you mean female to male or male to female? And what happens then when they switch? Wouldn't that be like dysphoric for somebody? You know, I'd, I'd consulted with the trans community, actually. Um, and these dancers who were very young and very inexperienced, like just just pushed back at me so hard. I think I, I did defend myself at first, like quite vigorously, I, because I'd really thought this through and I'd really looked at the profound legal consequences of erasing the terminology of women and sex in law. So I was looking at the very extremes, you know, women in prisons, rape victims in court, you know, I was looking at that sort of stuff. And they were literally saying, you're a bigot for saying this. And I'm like, but it, it, this is true. And of course, you know, since then I've been vindicated in the UK. Um, I think I was in absolute shock. You know, I was in 10 days away from the premiere. It's a very sensitive place. So I went, felt really almost paralyzed and, and, and really quite ill from, from the worry. So I asked my board to step in, but very early I discovered that somebody I really trusted on my board had had one of these sort of education programs by a quite notorious trans charity that really pushes this ideology as fact. And I don't know why she hadn't realised. I mean, through the whole process of me being investigated, I felt like I was trying to explain the most basic principles to like really intelligent people, but who had decided that no, Rosie was to blame and she needed to be witch hunted. And every step of the way, I trusted and believed in the process. I thought they would act with due diligence, but they treated me with no respect, no intelligence, despite my 25 year career, my positions at Oxford as a researcher. They literally would not listen. It was like, no, you're wrong. And I'm like, but I know what a woman is. I mean, I know what a woman is. I mean, I honestly thought I was gone mad and I was sent to a psychiatrist who said, no, you're, you're not mad. But I was, it was around then I sort of discovered voices like Helen Joyce, who wrote the book Trans and Julie Bindle. And I started to realise that I wasn't bonkers, the world was bonkers. And so I suppose by the second investigation, when they were using my funds of my company that was based on my work, I just started to think, oh, I can't work with any of these people. And so I really understood what constructive dismissal was. I resigned, but I would have sued them for constructive dismissal and discrimination and harassment, but they folded the company. So you can't, you can't sue something that doesn't exist. Some of your dancers did publish an open letter on this. I know you've heard these claims many times, but we do need to do our due diligence as journalists here and bring forward a few of these accusations made by the dancers who generally claimed you abused your power as their boss. Um, these are some of the remarks that they claim you said that trans women are a danger to actual women in toilets and only want access to female toilets to commit sexual assault, that there is no such thing as non-binary. You are one or the other. And if you believe you are non-binary, you are insane and that you interrogated non-binary cast members about uh, about which genitalia they had. Uh, these had were launched um, two internal inquiries, as you've mentioned. H how did you respond to these particular allegations? So, so I refer back to like what I was saying about the extremes. That if you if you take away any of the sort of like boundaries around women's spaces, they are no longer women's spaces, and so women lose any kind of sense of privacy or dignity. And it wasn't that old women, old trans women are predators. It's the fact that you open the door to people that will take advantage of that. And I was very clear about that. I asked them to explain non-binary because I was saying, I mean, I opened myself up and was talking about the near death of myself and my child in childbirth. And that 
having a sex at some point in your life is utterly undeniable. And I just couldn't understand that, you know, it, I could understand like androgyny and, and the sense that, you know, I'm certainly not a kind of like feminine kind of traditional woman. I, you know, I'm like, you know, up until that point, I was like, well, I'm non-binary. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. But then when you actually say, no, there is no such thing as sex. And it's like, that's not true. And I don't believe it. And it's not fact. And there are moments in one's life that it is undeniable that your biology matters and it matters hugely. And so this allegation of using terminology like penis and vagina was in reference to the near death in childbirth, that, that it's at those moments that you never are more aware in your life of, of how important one's sex is when, when, when it's at risk. And, and you know, these, these were perfectly, you know, well-made, emotional, serious points appealing to them and then to see them turned against me in, in terms of like sort of accusations was utterly, utterly horrifying. And you apologize, not for your beliefs, but for the upset that they had caused. And we should note in the UK, certain forms of gender critical feminism do count as philosophical beliefs and are thereby protected from discrimination under the Equality Act. Part of the argument that I have heard you make about why this conversation was so important to you and continues to be is about the physical body. And I, so I want to just read a passage from an essay you wrote for Unheard, just to underline that point. The oppression of women is based entirely on our biology and our reproductive rights and vulnerabilities. We embody our oppression and our strength. I feel this powerfully in my own body, a dancer's body, but also a woman's body, a body that has been raped, assaulted, attacked, strangled, knocked out, and abused. My body has been in deep pain, physical and mental. My body has been a victim that has scars running deep on my scalp and on my soul, but it is also a body that has created, nurtured, and given life, a body that coped with pregnancy, that survived an emergency birth that then breastfed an infant until he was 30 months, a body of beauty, miracle, love, and care. Why is the physical body significant for you to stress in, in this instance? I mean, you're talking to a dancer. Uh, <laughs> I trained since I was three. So I danced almost, you know, before I could talk. That's the family legend. And so my understanding of the entirety of the universe is is through a dancing body but of course it's more than that it's a dancing spirit it's a dancing soul and then you know to actually become a dancer is incredibly long grueling physical painful incredible process but it demands huge sacrifice and you know tens and tens of thousands of hours of practice going from you know a skinny child to a hormonal teenager to to a to an older teenager dealing with 10 hours a day in front of a mirror in you know unitard <laughs> you know there could be anything more horrific for a teenager to go through while you're going through sort of late puberty to then you know a life even just really simple things like actually finally understanding that your hypermobility is affected by your hormone cycle that you're much more prone to injury just after your period starts because your ligaments relax, you know, that you're much tighter and less flexible the week before your period, you know, and, and helping dancers and women understand that in the studio. We have a demanding job. It's eight to 10 hours a day. 
we go through different hormonal cycles and, and women often have no education in this and don't realize that their diet and supplements can make a huge difference. And also as a boss, I can be completely accommodating towards this and, and taper the work to suit. Then also there is there's the way that the body speaks to us. That is actually part of my art form. We have the craft and the skill and the technicality but the way we watch dance when we sit in an auditorium and we and we listen and we look and we feel it in our own bodies, part of that is a, is a deep psychological, emotional world that I think dance can say much more articulately and much more beautifully and much more complexly than we can with words. Because actually we are physical beings and, and we sort of slice, you know, the cartoon. I've never known anything as the cartoon as this movement right now to sort of imagine that we're meat sacks we sort of we could chop our heads off and be any sex or gender and these bodies can just sort of shrivel or become a beast. It's not true. We are our bodies. Our bodies are us. And that can be a really, really difficult thing. I think there's nothing more Descartian, you know, the, the kind of separation of the mind and the body than this movement we're living through right now to kind of imagine that we live inside our heads, which, which are just a kind of like a computerized version of the human existence. And our bodies are just meat sacks that can sort of shrivel or, or, or become a beast. And, and it doesn't matter. I, I completely stand against that as somebody who has not always had a best relationship with her body, you know, either have to lose weight or put on weight or whatever, but actually to, to be in your body, to feel your body, to be to, to kind of forget, but to be one is just one of the most fantastic feelings in the world. And I really thought we were on the right path, both men and women, to sort of accepting ourselves. And this has come along and, and this is really, this scares me. I, I want to talk a little bit about the physicality of the cancellation attempt. This is something I have a little bit of experience with. I experienced a pile on myself here in Canada. And when I heard you talk about how physical that experience was, that's the first time I had heard that. You know, I, I I didn't sleep for a few nights. I couldn't eat. I mean, it was it's such a physical, physical response, isn't it? Talk to me a little bit about how you would describe your experience going through that and and the fallout directly after. Well, yeah, it was it was about three months of kind of torture. So yeah, I I I couldn't eat. Uh, I I was being sick, like dry retching a lot. I couldn't exercise properly because I kind of didn't feel safe. Like I didn't feel safe enough to go into my body. I thought I might injure myself. I, I felt very brittle, very dry. My sleep was very disturbed. I'd wake up with like just profound, you know, palpitations. So would and, and just felt very like, like my adrenaline was super, super high. So you don't know when you're going to get a phone call or an email. Emails would come late at night or there would be family events and suddenly, you know, they'd be disturbed. So I could never actually switch off or relax. And then when it got towards the end, when I started to realise just how badly I was being treated and how this couldn't go on, I had a few experiences where I actually collapsed. And I remember lying on the living room floor and I couldn't, I just couldn't move. And it was really, I mean, my sister's so funny. She, she said, it's like the end scene of Fight Club because the company was called Rosie K. Don's Company. So it's like the end scene of Fight Club. You're going to have to kill yourself in order to live, you realise. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and that lying on the floor, like dead, like couldn't move. I, I think that was the point. I was like, that's enough. 
that's enough now. You know, I don't want this to kill me. Like, I can't. So I think around then, then I sort of changed mindset and I started like collecting a very tight little team around me. And I went, right, I'm going to resign and I want to go public. How do we do it? And then it was still very stressful and I felt very ill. But actually from resigning onwards, there's been a huge amount of stress, but it's been much better because I've been back in control. I, I do think the rebuilding is is so interesting. And I, I recently wrote a piece on, on women in cancel culture, and I was looking at Alison Roman, and she had told The New Yorker, there's no cases of women being dragged to hell and back and then in this cancel culture phenomenon and then being able to speak again. But actually, there are, and you are one of them. And I, I, I do think I've heard you say that there's a sort of after you go through the sort of shock and grief, you get this rush of creative energy. That was certainly the case for me. Talk to me a little bit about that rebuilding process, starting this new dance company and, and what the response to that has been like. Well, I certainly got like a, a, a big rush last year, but but the problem is I don't think the cancel culture is over. So there's still like this sort of like multiple layers to it so so I suppose like my, my thinking might have changed slightly recently in that the way I look at it I feel like I was like a child before I absolutely loved my my profession I loved what I did I thought I'd protected myself because I loved it so much but also because I'd you know courted controversy with my work so I was renowned for being quite honest being quite outspoken having opinions you know these sorts of things I thought that might protect me um, and I realized how, I wasn't naive, but I feel very grown up now. I feel very adult. And some of that has been a grief to lose that naivety, not the love, but the naivety. And now I think I have a much deeper approach to all of the arts. It feels much more grown up, much more serious. I do want to keep the light side, the playfulness, the curiosity, but there is another level now, and, and I'm I'm yet to see that play out. You know, the, the arts are in a tough place anyway. Like you said, there's, there's a lot of dull work out there. There are less and less opportunities. You know, I do have a tour going on next year, but, I mean, I would love to be tested of what's going on with my new work now. I just want people to be brave enough to, to, to commission and programme it. You know, it's interesting who, where the support comes from in times of this. I, I heard about your story when Winston Marshall, formerly of Mumford & Sons, was on my podcast. I know he has supported you. And I imagine you've heard from a lot of artists along the way, including, of course, famously J.K. Rowling, who publicly praised you, saying you were ready to lose everything in this fight. What did that support mean to you and, and who else rallied to help you? That was funny. She responded to a tweet. I mean, she'd been really pivotal. Um I really wanted to make my one and only autobiographical solo about having a woman's body. And when she published her essay, it was so profound. It had a big impact on women in the UK, particularly. And I think I liked it and retweeted it. And within like two minutes, I'd had this mass, I'd had my first pi little mini pylon and I'd sort of been terrified and deleted it and run away and then felt really bad, like a bit dirty so I kind of knew that something was was brewing around this movement. So when she tweeted that, I think I'd been cleaning the kitchen floor that day. So it was, it was really like ah, I'm running through to my husband. Oh my god! And then I and then I did meet her a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and and uh, and she when she knew who I was, she gave me a massive hug, and 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 we just you know I gave her a massive hug back, and she's just 
it's just astonishing someone of her level you know has just she's just not given up she's not kowtowed and I think that really helps us as women just go no do you, do you know what we're just not having it no no and I, and, and I do want to help other artists because there is a there's a fear and there's a loneliness as, as one artist said it's it's a culture of fear and loathing you loathe yourself because you're not speaking out and other people may loathe you for any reason <laughs> you know I never really felt what fear and loathing is and you just got to be able to say I'm not afraid and I'm not going to give in to loathing I'm just not doing it and that in itself you know you're right people are come to that because we know it's wrong we know it's wrong it is interesting the the gender critical feminism movement in the UK is is in a very different place than it is in Canada this is still extremely taboo in Canada although there are those of us who want to have these conversations and want to be able to respect women's rights and trans rights as well want to be able to have a conversation that is based in care and respect on both sides um but in Canada this is still extremely taboo to talk about this i do want to end by circling back to where we started freedom in the arts which is you've just said it's really important right now to support artists in, in making challenging art. And your group's manifesto states, while society continues to debate complex issues such as race, gender, sex, equality, religion, climate change, and geopolitical events, the arts have rushed to offer singular, unnuanced responses that shut out other views and often alienate audiences. Talk to me a little bit. What is the game plan for Freedom in the Arts and what will this pushback look like? To help support artists when they find themselves in this position which can be very shocking and you know that's giving advice but also signposting them towards the right legal support if they need some the second is really to help arts institutions and organizations and say for example you don't necessarily need to put out political statements on everything it may be about upholding impartiality and also really digging down into what is your mission and purpose as an organisation in the arts and fulfilling that <laughs> and allowing the arts to have those complex debates, you know, as artists in the work rather than the institutions themselves. So like some really good old fashioned impartiality would be very helpful to hold the space, the safe space that it's meant to be for these complex discussions to have. And then on the third level, we are really working hard to speak to funders and to lobby at political levels of all political parties. Because I think, you know, the arts can really easily get dismissed. But like I said earlier, they, they really shine a light on society. They, they, they kind of, they're upstream of the politics, they're upstream of education. They really shape the culture of what's going on. And I'm really scared that we're at risk of alienating everybody, especially our audience, if we keep going down a kind of Victorian, we must educate you sort of finger pointing way. I don't think, I think audiences are far more intelligent, far more sophisticated than that. And they want to have, they want to go to the theatre or the music or the art gallery and, and, and think and talk about these things. I don't think anybody likes being shut down at all. Do you think this is an elitist phenomenon? Does this have to do with class? It's funny you mentioned that because I'm, I'm doing quite a lot of research also into arts education and grassroots arts, like the access. So I was very lucky, you know, to get grassroots ballet training, very cheap. You know, I, I got free music training through my school. 
these sorts of things are getting rarer and rarer and more and more expensive. I spoke to somebody in the classical music scene just this week who said only people that are going to conservatoires are children that have gone through the private school system because they're the, that's the only place you can get that level of musical education. Whereas I have like friends who 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 are in you know county orchestras, nationwide orchestras, all through the state provision, and, and they become incredible musicians. So there is a problem of the pipe into the arts and that's gone on now for quite a period of time and so those young people going into the workplace are holding what some people describe as luxury beliefs and it's very different to to the way I trained the people I trained with the grassroots work I've been involved with in communities it's kind of like I've so I heard one artist say you you're sort of despised because of your experience Rosie (laughs) and I do feel like that it's kind of like well, hang on a minute, you know, do you know anything about the work I've done, the communities I work with, the sort of the range of people from like, you know, kids in in, in majority Muslim schools in Birmingham to like military people. It, it, you end up with, you know, with an open mind because you've met so many different people and different opinions. And I don't need to impose my opinions on anyone else at all. In fact, I like to change my mind on things. Just lastly, Rosie, how will we know when this period of censoriousness is over? How do we know? How do we know when it's over? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and it's funny because there's always somebody going, oh, the tide has turned, the tide has turned, and, you, and you're like, oh, maybe not, maybe yes, maybe not. And you get your hopes up and then you, you sort of, nope, that's terrible, that's come in. Um, I think it's really important not to kind of name and shame and, control everybody I I think I don't think there'll be some grand dramatic endpoint. I think there'll be a slow creep creep back to sanity a little bit like the end of the witch trials or something everyone sort of just pretended it was somebody else and they never really believed it anyway and there are going to be some of us that go no (laughs) you're lying but I think you know like I said, it's it's a grown-up very adult approach to say good okay let's get back to I mean, the, the, the worry is if we if we don't get back to values, like what on earth is that? You know, I, I, I doesn't bear thinking about the you know the shutdown of the arts because that doesn't affect us. That affects generation after generation. It takes a long time to get it back. So freedoms and liberties that we haven't had to fight for for a while, we do need to fight right now. We need to fight together, and then we need to welcome everyone back when we get when we get there. Well, that is a good note to leave it on today. We will be really watching closely Freedom in the Arts. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, Rosie. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lean Out will publish a link to the open letter from Rosie Kay's former dancers at my Substack, so that listeners may read it in full. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. This week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism and want to support our work, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>